A few years ago, following a trip to Africa, our daughter was finishing a round of malaria medicine when one of the capsules lodged in her esophagus, creating an open wound overnight. A visit to the hospital and some uncomfortable tests resulted in prescriptions for two additional bottles of pills. It seemed ironic to me that pills caused the problem and that pills were also the remedy. Today, many issues can be treated with medication of some kind, but you know as well as I do that there are some things no pill can fix. We've only had to study the first ten and a half chapters of the Bible to see that since the fall, there's something desperately wrong with mankind. Overall, Genesis 3 through 11 is a portrait of mankind's sin sickness, his rebellion in the face of God's goodness. We would have hoped to discover that the world was a far better place after the flood wiped it clean. Instead, we've got to sadly conclude that while God had been just in removing Noah's depraved generation from the earth, the flood ultimately did nothing to cure mankind's diseased heart. Well, after the flood, Noah's three sons were entrusted with the job of repopulating the earth. And our lesson begins with a story that gives insight into each son's character. We also learn what happened to some of their descendants, socially, geographically, and spiritually, within this framework of repopulation and man's ongoing rebellion. And then the lesson ends with a second story showing how the sins of the fathers, in this case, Ham and Canaan, were handed down and how God dealt with this sin in order to protect his ultimate promise plan of salvation. Overall, these last chapters of primeval history emphasize that, left on our own, mankind is hopelessly sinful. Well, by way of introducing the story and the genealogies that follow, Genesis 9, 18, and 19 tells us that after the flood, Noah's sons repopulated the earth. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Now, the sons of Noah are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It's possible that this frequently repeated list, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, reflects their birth order. Some translations of Genesis 10.21 confirm that Shem was indeed the older brother of Japheth, yet other translations, like mine, indicate that Japheth was actually Shem's older brother. Additionally, most translations of verse 24 indicate that Ham was the youngest of Noah's sons. It says, when Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him. But some scholars believe that that term youngest is comparative, actually younger, rather than the superlative. So Ham may have been only one of the two younger sons. If Japheth was, in fact, the eldest brother, you might wonder why Shem keeps preceding him in Moses' list, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
A likely explanation is that Moses desired to honor Shem as the forefather of Israel. But then the genealogical table in chapter 10 gives Shem's lineage last. This too is easily explained, since the genealogies of Genesis consistently list the brother who is not part of the important messianic line first and briefly, as if to only give a nod to them and then dismiss them. Then they give a longer and more important account of the brother from whom Jesus descended. Now, I'm sure you noticed that one grandson is also included in the introductory statement of verses 18 and 19. That is Canaan. And as we read on, we realize the author mentioned Canaan here in the beginning because the story he's about to tell concludes with Canaan's cursing. In verses 20 and 21, we're told that Noah had agricultural talent. He was a man of the soil. Unfortunately, the fruit of his gift led to his disgrace. He became drunk on wine and lay uncovered inside his tent. Most likely, he uncovered himself because he was flushed. The New Testament forbids drunkenness. Not drinking, but drunkenness. Small amounts of wine, actually, most of us know, appear to have some health benefits. But I do urge you to exercise great caution and discernment in deciding whether or not this benefit is worth the risk it introduces. Alcoholism, as you may know, is on the rise and results in horrific pain and destruction to families. The dysfunction in Noah's family is a clear example. While drunkenness may not be a temptation for you, it may become so for someone observing you like one of your children. And none of us can say for sure that even a modest amount of alcohol consumption won't, at some later time, develop into an addiction. What a scary thought. Well, some have thought that Noah may not have realized the effect the wine would have. Although that's possible, Noah wasn't a sinless man, nor does the Bible ever hesitate to expose the failures of its heroes. In the end, Noah's drunkenness really isn't the main point of this story. The incident is mentioned because it highlights the character of Noah's sons, character qualities that were apparently imitated and expanded upon by some of Noah's grandsons, as explained in the extended family history that follows. Now, verse 22 says that Ham saw his father naked and told his brothers about it. Later, verses 24 and 25, Noah cursed him for it. What exactly was Ham's sin? And why was his offense so severe that it was worthy of a curse? Some of the proposed explanations include the possibility that intercourse between Ham and his mother, possibly resulting in the birth of Canaan, is somehow implied, or that Ham raped his naked father, or even that Ham castrated Noah. But none of these is stated in the account, nor are they really necessary to explain the story. The Bible places great emphasis on honoring one's parents. In the Ten Commandments, honoring one's parents is first 
among those that reference our relationships with other people. By viewing his father's nakedness and making light of his father's vulnerable position, Ham showed great disrespect for his father. In those days, the father's genitals were considered a sign of his strength and a symbol of the family's dignity. At the very least, Ham was morally careless. Like the other five flood survivors, he'd undoubtedly been impacted by the wicked culture whose people God had destroyed in the flood. Had you thought of that? However, in reading on into Genesis 10, and even further into Genesis, we discover that Ham's disrespect might not have been limited to this single incident. Rather, the story may reflect an underlying potential or tendency towards sexual perversion, as was certainly the case with the descendants of Ham's son, Canaan. More on that later. Well, notice that verse 22 calls Ham the father of Canaan. Then after the incident in which Ham showed disrespect, we read in verse 25 that Noah cursed Ham's son Canaan, not Ham. Attempts to explain this usually suggest that Canaan was somehow involved in the incident, as I mentioned earlier, you know, possibilities such as that Canaan was born as a result of it. But Canaan's involvement isn't explicit in the text. Surely one observation anyone can make from history, including our own personal family history, is that it's not uncommon at all for a child to share his or her parents' or grandparents' weaknesses, sometimes to a greater extent. Noah must have seen Ham's personal weakness magnified in Canaan to such a greater degree that he cursed Canaan for it. While we don't know the extent of Canaan's personal sin, his descendants were a repulsively immoral people, as I suggested earlier, especially known for sexual obsession and deviation. The Canaanite city of Sodom was famous for homosexuality. The term sodomy is derived from it. Archaeologists have uncovered Canaanite symbols and texts that, in the word of Old Testament scholar Walt Kaiser, are explicit enough to make many a modern pornographic dealer seem a mere beginner in the trade of deviant sexuality. According to Kaiser, even the depraved Romans were shocked by the practices of the last vestige of Canaanites, the Phoenicians at Carthage. I must add that Although Ham's behavior foreshadowed the sin of his descendants, Ham wasn't ultimately responsible for God's curse on Canaan. Canaan and his descendants were cursed because of their own moral choices. Well, in verse 23, we're told that two of Noah's sons had a proper sense of guilt and shame. In contrast to their brother's disrespect, Shem and Japheth entered the tent backward in order to avoid seeing their naked father's body, and they covered him. So the story helps us make sense of Noah's blessing and curse, which follows. 
they reflect the nature of his three sons and prophetically predict that these natures would be perpetuated in their descendants. Sadly, some have wrongly used this passage to support the superiority of some nations or races, and in in earlier times even twisted it to justify the enslavement of others. However, it's worth noting that the object of Noah's curse is specifically the Canaanites who were not black. Racial prejudice is sin and certainly can't be supported by this or any other Bible passage. Now let's look at the curse and the blessings in verses 25 through 27. Noah said Canaan would be a slave to his brothers. Years later, God promised the land of Canaan to Shem's descendant, Abraham. Centuries after that promise was given, God sent Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, to destroy the Canaanite people because the Canaanite sin had reached its full measure. A few pockets of Canaanites survived and, in fact, became slaves of Israel in direct fulfillment of Noah's prophecy. Shem was the ancestor of Abraham and the Israelites. In verse 26, Noah praised the God of Shem, an indication that Shem followed in his father's righteous footsteps. The blessing on Japheth was twofold. Noah prophesied that Japheth's territory would be extended. Possibly this blessing was also meant to include the world's goods. Today, the Indo-European peoples, Japheth's descendants, do occupy the greatest amount of the earth's land. But Noah also prophesied that Japheth would live in the tents of Shem. In the most general sense, this suggests friendly terms between the two. The greater geographical distance between the Japhethites and the Shemites certainly made warring over land disputes less likely. By contrast, Shem's descendants and Ham's descendants, especially the Canaanites, dwelt in much closer proximity to one another. If we take the Japhethites to represent all Gentiles, there's also a spiritual fulfillment to this prophecy. The Gentiles have been included in that is, lived in the tents of, the spiritual blessings of Israel. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 explains that thoroughly. Furthermore, we learn from the book of Acts that when the gospel was carried outside Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, it was primarily carried into the European regions and from there to the ends of the earth, the European regions where the Japhethites settled. Well, Noah's drunkenness, Ham's sin, and Canaan's curse sadly illustrate what God had said immediately after the flood in chapter 8, verse 22. The inclination of the human heart still remained evil. Since Genesis 9 portrays Ham as a man without moral character, You might wonder at Ham's inclusion in the remnant that was saved by the ark. Why did God spare Ham? Ham seemed to be morally more like those who'd been destroyed by the flood, but he'd yet, nevertheless yet, been a participant in God's blessing. 
Only God knows whether Ham repented of his disrespect and entered into a life of faith. Ham may be in heaven today, or perhaps he's not. But the warning and the lesson are serious for us. Participating in God's blessings doesn't ensure one's salvation. Did you get that? Participating in God's blessings doesn't assure one's salvation. The author of Hebrews makes this point, repeatedly pleading with us not to take our salvation for granted. You see, it's possible to align oneself with God's people by profession of faith, church attendance, even faithful commitment to attending a Bible study. And it's possible to participate in God's blessings by acknowledging him as the giver of all of life's good pleasures, by interest in God's word, and even by seeking evidence of God at work around you. And still not be saved from the curse, the penalty of our sins in the end. We can't gain eternal life by merely aligning ourselves with and acknowledging what is right and true. We are only truly saved by the kind of personal faith in Jesus Christ that is transformational and persevering. Have you examined your motives for aligning yourself with God's people? and even participating in this Bible study? You might be experiencing some benefits by it, but if you've not determined to follow Jesus on the narrow road that leads to salvation at any cost, you may be like Ham. You have no guarantee of final salvation. That is a very serious matter and worthy of our immediate and honest consideration. Have you aligned yourself with God's people and received some of the blessings of it without ever truly putting your faith in Jesus and giving your life fully over to him so that you're a changed person from the inside out? If so, I plead with you to give your life without reservation to the only one who can ever possess you without destroying you. Well, reading of Noah's drunkenness and Ham's sin clearly makes the point that removing sinful people from the world, as God did in the flood, wasn't sufficient to remove the sin nature from mankind. Left to ourselves, we are hopelessly sinful. Moving on, Genesis 10 and 11 describe how the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. Note that while Japheth, Ham, and Shem are listed, only a few specific grandsons are named so that the total number of sons and grandsons or their people groups equals 70. An interesting parallel appears in Genesis 46, where we find a list of Jacob's 70 descendants who he took to Egypt. 
The number seven and its multiples are of special significance in the Bible. Seven indicates completeness. In this case, the total sons or people groups listed in Genesis 10 not only total 70, many of the sublists total seven. This clearly suggests that the list in Genesis 10 probably isn't exhaustive. Nevertheless, it's complete in the sense that it's exactly as God intended it to be. Furthermore, the author's interest wasn't simply to randomly include or omit names to ensure a total of 70. Remember that under God's divine inspiration, it was Moses who penned Genesis. And the more one studies the list in the context of the books of Moses, the more apparent it becomes that his purpose was to describe the relationships of the nations and individuals to Israel. It's possible that not all of the relationships described in this table of nations, as Genesis 10 has come to be called, may be familial within a family. Some of the individuals named may have chosen to ally with different tribes than the ones into which they were born, and the table may reflect these alliances. For example, verse 22 tells us that Asher, father of the Assyrians, was a Shemite, a descendant of Shem. Yet Assyria and its capital Nineveh is included in the region of Nimrod, the Hamite's kingdom indicating that Asher the Shemite chose to identify with Ham's line. Now let's look at this table. First, we have Japheth. Japheth may have been the oldest son, as previously explained, and this could be the reason his descendants are named first, but it would be more keeping with the pattern of Genesis to conclude that Japheth's line is given first because the author is less interested in it. The hostility between the people of Ham and the people of Shem actually constitutes the story of the remainder of the Old Testament. Well, what do we know about Japheth? Well, he is an ancestor of the world's Aryan people groups, the Indo-European people groups. The Japhethites listed are primarily associated with northern and western sites, Asia Minor and Europe. The Hamites are primarily associated with Egypt, Mesopotamia, and Arabia. As the primary Old Testament enemies of the Jews, much more detail is given here about Ham's descendants than those of Japheth. The first son of Ham listed is Cush. Interestingly, the names of some of Cush's descendants are also listed as descendants of Shem indicating mingling between the tribes. The name Cush can be traced into Africa, but Cush's descendants were not all African settlers. Most of them were Arabian, and at least one, Nimrod, built cities in Mesopotamia. Nimrod's name is still attached to cities and mounds in Babylonia today and appears in Sumerian and other ancient literature, testifying to his truly dynamic character. In Hebrew, Genesis 10.8 calls Nimrod a giborim, which means a mighty man of valor, strength, wealth, or power. In Genesis 6, 
Moses used the very same term to describe the, describe the depraved pre-flood Nephilim. Although the chief idea is that like the Nephilim, Nimrod was a powerful man. This association with them is not flattering to him. Nimrod's name actually means to rebel or to revolt. From inference in the Bible and from history, it can really only be concluded that he was a man who lived in violent resistance to God. From him, we're told, a saying became popular. Like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Chapter 10, verse 9. Hunting was a common pursuit of early Egyptian and Mesopotamian kings. Hebrew scholars understand the phrase before the Lord in two ways. One is simply that the Lord's name indicates a superlative degree. In other words, Nimrod was the greatest hunter in the world. But the second understanding is that the Lord observed Nimrod's hunting. And in light of Nimrod's connection with Babylon, and by implication, the Tower of Babel incident in chapter 11, one would have to conclude that God must have been displeased with what he saw. And that before the Lord, that phrase, before the Lord, actually implies against the Lord. The Lord occasion the Bible, excuse me, the Bible occasionally uses the Hebrew word hunt in reference to hunting men. It seems that Moses intended to tell us that Nimrod was an aggressive, tyrannical empire builder. He founded Mesopotamian kingdoms in Babylonia, that is Shinar, and Assyria. According to chapter 11, Babylonia is where the Tower of Babel was constructed. Both Babylon and Assyria play significant roles in Old Testament history. In the 8th to 6th centuries, the Assyrian and Babylonian empires dominated the Middle East. More importantly, they were major enemies of Israel. Now, another descendant of Shem, of course, was Canaan. We've already learned that. And since we've already been told that Canaan was the object of Noah's curse, it's not surprising that he receives much attention in this chapter as well. As we'll learn, Canaan occupied the land that the Israelites were to inherit. And then last but certainly not least, the Shemite descendants are listed. The Shemites, the Semitic people groups, are primarily associated with the areas of northern Mesopotamia, Syria, and Arabia. Five sons of Shem are listed, one of whom is Arfashad. This man has two biblical distinctions, and both are related to his grandson, Eber. First, Eber is the eponym of Hebrew, although among Eber's descendants, only those with the lineage of Israel use that name. Second, Eber carried the privileged line from which the promised Messiah would descend. Genesis 11 and Luke 3 record this genealogy. Eber had two sons, Joktan, the brother from whom the Messiah did not ascend, and whose name and descendants are listed and then dismissed, and Peleg, the ancestor of Abraham and thus of Jesus Christ. The phrase here, 
in Peleg's time the earth was divided, is given to explain Peleg's name. Traditionally, that phrase is understood to indicate that it was during Peleg's lifetime that the Lord actually confused men's languages, as described in chapter 11. The description of Peleg's descendants is delayed until chapter 11, where it receives much greater attention. Now, this table, as we've seen, is immediately followed by an explanation in chapter 11 of how and why the nations dispersed. It begins with the statement, Now, the world had one language and a common speech. That's curious, since we were told three times in the previous chapter that each of the people groups had its own language. The logical conclusion is that the Tower of Babel incident, as I said, explains the reason for the scattering that's detailed in chapter 10. In the process, it gives us a lot of insight into the spiritual climate of the day. We're told that moving eastward, people settled in Shinar, Babylonia, and built a city with a tower so that they would not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, following the flood, the Lord expressly commanded Noah's sons to fill the earth. In order to spread over the earth, close social and familial ties would have had to be broken. Not an easy thing to do, since these are important sources of security, especially to those who haven't found security in their Heavenly Father. I speak from experience when I say that while there's much joy and comfort in living near one's family, sweeter still is the blessing that comes on those who've had to leave their extended families to follow the call of God. Don't ever hesitate to follow him wherever he leads. But conversely, Genesis 11 shows the people's rebellion and disregard for the God of their forefather Noah. Their refusal to spread out is reminiscent of Cain's refusal to wander. Have you ever thought about the fact that unity allows for greatness, both for good and for evil? The Lord's statement actually highlights this fact. He said, if as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Verse 6. The Babylonians found unity in their apostasy. Recall that Nimrod founded Babylonia. Throughout the scriptures, Babylon often symbolizes God's enemies, whom he will ultimately overthrow. The Babylonians' first sin was disobedience to the Lord's command to fill the earth. The second was attempting to make a name for themselves. Isn't it often the goal of those who have no assurance of life beyond the grave? And even a temptation for those of us who know Christ. The Babylonians sought to memorialize themselves by building something great. In this case, a great tower. Pride was the root of their sin. 
Now, the Tower of Babel was almost certainly a ziggurat, a multi-stage temple tower characteristic of ancient Mesopotamian cities. These temple towers symbolized a meeting point between heaven and earth, with the top of the tower being the place where the gods supposedly resided. They were a human attempt to reach the gods. Ancient literature calls the city Babil, B-A-B-I-L, meaning the gate of God. Historians believe that the first ziggurat was erected in Babylon. The building of these ziggurats required a great amount of organization, and of course the result was communal pride. By building the tower, the Babylonians arrogantly believed they could reach the gods. Humorously, the Bible account states that the tower was so far from God that he had to calm down to see it. We know that previously God responded to the decay of society with judgment by flood. On this occasion, he responded with another kind of judgment, the confusion of languages. It effectively ended the building program, and the people were forced to scatter. While the Babylonians apparently thought their city was the gate of God, B-A-B-I-L, the Bible calls it B-A-B-E-L, Babel, a word, a Hebrew word that sounds like the word for confused. This is the reason why in the English language today, Babel means gibberish. One thing we can surely conclude from the first 11 chapters of Genesis is that left to ourselves, we are hopelessly sinful. Left to ourselves, we fall, as Adam did from grace, Genesis 3. Left to ourselves, we, like Lamech, descendant of Cain, believe we are more powerful than we really are, Genesis 4. Left to ourselves, like the sons of God who took the daughters of men, do whatever we please. Genesis 6. Left to ourselves, our strengths and gifts lead us into temptation, as did Noah's. Genesis 9. And left to ourselves, we seek our own security and build our own empires. Genesis 11. But what began as a project of Babylonian civil pride ended as a monument of disgrace. Proverbs 11.2 tells us pride leads to disgrace. That's our second principle. It's so important to know that pride leads to disgrace. It's been said that every human being is a little empire builder. My friend, what are you building or investing in? Your retirement or bank account? Your career or resume? Your reputation or position? Your family? You know, that model Christian family you secretly hope others will see? Maybe it's 
your ministry, the one you hope will be a lasting monument to yourself? Let's be honest, it's a temptation. Is pride at the root of our building projects? Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, its labors build in vain. Pastor Max Licato has called pride the poison pill. Apart from God's grace and because of our sin nature, it has insidiously lodged into the deepest recesses of our hearts. And left alone, pride will eat us alive. It will make you resentful and envious and sleepless and sick to your stomach. And ultimately, it may just kill you of a heart attack. But my friends, we have a choice. Will you join me in inviting the Lord of heaven to come down today and put an end to our building efforts, to your building efforts, and become the builder of all, all of our buildings.